Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be reading the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. Let's give attention now to God's holy Word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, Love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. We continue our study of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This important, significant chapter in the Word of God where the Apostle Paul addresses the church at Corinth with the significance of love, the centrality of love, the indispensable necessity of love. We considered in our last time in the first three verses the great lengths to which the Apostle Paul goes to illustrate and demonstrate how important, how integral and necessary true Christian love is. Love for God and love for others. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable we are about the doctrines of the Bible, the mysteries of the faith, doesn't matter how eloquent we may be in describing and defending and advocating these particular doctrines. It doesn't matter how self-sacrificial we may be in doing good works and even giving all of our possessions away, selling them and giving to the poor. 
even if we were to die as martyrs for the cause of Christ, all of these things would send us into a lost eternity if we don't truly love God and out of our love for God, love others. And Paul is passionate about this point because he's dealing with a situation in Corinth where the people are missile-locked on spiritual gifts and ignoring spiritual graces. So they're focused on who the best preachers are. I am of Paul. I am of Apollo. So on and so forth. They're, uh, you know, I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. You know, the, the, uh, the truly pious ones. But they're debating back and forth as to who has the greatest spiritual gifts in terms of preaching. They're having contentions at the Lord's Supper. Some people, you know, they're bringing their own food and wine and, and just boasting in their wealth. Some people aren't even able to eat anything. Other people are gorging themselves. There's disunity. There are factions. And with so much ungodliness taking place, I mean, chapter 6, there are people who are defrauding one another. Chapter 5, there's perverse immorality taking place that even the Gentiles wouldn't even speak of all kinds of controversies, all kinds of sins and scandals going on, but all that they can focus on is spiritual gifts and parading themselves, some of them able to speak in tongues, others able to interpret all of these various first century apostolic gifts of revelation. And Paul is saying no. The key to getting back on track as a congregation is to stop focusing so much on spiritual gifts and trying to look good and grandstand and exercise your gift and compare it to other people's gift. But there's a more excellent way. Chapter 12, verse 31. There's a more excellent way, and that is the way of love. King James says charity. So you may be familiar with Jonathan Edwards' famous series of sermons or lectures on this chapter, Charity and Its Fruits. I would highly recommend that. I've read through that several times, done some book studies on it, so you may recognize some of my points, some of the things that we talk about in connection with those sermons. But Paul is honing in on love. And it's interesting, after he shows us how important it is, verse 4, he begins to describe it. This is not a definition of love. This is a description of love. He's fleshing out what it looks like, and in particular, what it looks like in the real world, in a real life situation. He talks about speaking with the tongue of men or of angels. But when he deals with love, he's not dealing with some airy-fairy thing up in a perfect world in the cloud. He's dealing with love in a fallen, wicked, sinful world. Indeed, in a wicked, sinful, divided church. He's saying you need to exercise love in the midst of this ecclesiastical food fight where there's mashed potatoes flying in every direction. You need to exercise love in the real world. And the very first description he gives of Christian love is to describe how it deals with suffering at the hands of other people in the church. How it deals with offenses where another brother or sister has offended you, has sinned against you, whether it's in your family or in the church or whatever. Uh, Maybe it's in the workplace. Again, these things have so many different applications, but it's in the real world. It's It's an evil world. It's an offensive world. 
It's a dog-eat-dog world. And love is able to function, even thrive, in that environment. Remember, God is love, and God in the person of Christ became incarnate and walked among us and fully fulfilled the law of God in loving God and loving His neighbor in a wicked world. And Jesus Himself calls us not just to love our friends or to love our brethren, but to love our enemies. Matthew 5.43 and following. And, and this is a litmus test for a true Christian. This is one of them. First John talks about it quite a bit. But specifically, not just loving your brother, but loving your brother who has offended you. Indeed, loving your enemy. Somebody who's out to get you. Jesus says that that's a mark of a true citizen of His kingdom. The meek inherit the earth. Someone who's willing to love even their enemies. And that's something Whereas the world may pay lip service to certain teachings of Jesus and so on and so forth. If, you know, when the rubber meets the road, you can in some sense tell the difference between a nominal Christian and a true Christian with this commandment in practice. Do you believe it's your duty to love your enemies? Or put it this way, do you believe that love suffers for a long time and remains kind toward the person that is causing that suffering? Now, the first question we ask here, what sort of suffering is in view? What sort of suffering is in view? We can imagine all kinds of different types of offenses and suffering and Certainly, our thoughts may be drawn immediately to certain great, violent, oppressive offenses and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that this passage is irrelevant for cases of you know, murder and abuse and things like that. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. But I don't think that's specifically what Paul is focusing on in 1 Corinthians 13. And the very language that he uses suggests that he's dealing with the sorts of offenses that happen on an ongoing basis, not just a one-time thing. Somebody kills your family member. Of course, there's, there's a place for loving your enemy and so on, but, but, but we're not preaching on Matthew 5.43 here. We're preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. And he's saying things maybe on an ongoing basis in the life of your family or in the life of your church. Not somebody drowning you, but the Chinese water torture, the sort of thing that's just irritating and offensive on an ongoing basis and it just keeps happening again and again and again for the big offenses we might call the police we might get the church elders involved but but here we're dealing with things just every day ongoing this suffering this offensiveness and it just keeps happening again and again and again these sins against us these wrongs and well what are some examples we could think of the ten commandments Think of the last six commandments that deal with the love that we ought to show to our fellow human beings. So you've got the fifth commandment. And you think of position of authority that you may possess. And those under your authority are disrespecting you. They're not treating you in, in, a, in a reverent way. They're not honoring and obeying you in accordance with your scriptural authority. Or you might be under authority and the person who's over you who has the God-given authority is abusing that authority for their own ends and they're neglecting their duties and so on. They're, they're provoking you to wrath. You can think of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. But Jesus says if you call someone a bad name or if you speak unkindly or have unjust 
anger against someone. You convey a sort of bitterness or hatred to them through your gestures, through your expressions, through your tones of voice, through the things that you say and do, the things that you don't do. If you're on the other end of that, that's offensive, that's hurtful. And that can happen in a variety of ways. Seventh commandment, we think of sexual purity. You know, there can be things that people do that are a stumbling block for you and that offends you and and you get upset about it or so on and so forth. The Eighth Commandment, somebody takes something that belongs to you, somebody doesn't respect your private personal property, maybe your siblings, children, you have something, a toy or a book, something that's yours that you got for your birthday and then your brother or sister just takes it and maybe they take it and they ruin it accidentally. These things happen even for adults as well. People don't, you know, your neighbor doesn't respect the property line and does something against your property. Their dog gets loose in your yard, fill in the blank. You know, there are many things that people do that are unkind, that are uncharitable, that are unreasonable, that are insensitive to the rights and privileges that God has given us. The ninth commandment Somebody lies about you, lies to you, exaggerates something, misleads you in some way. You see this with salespeople all the time. They, they present things in a way that is deceptive. If somebody does that to you and you get the short end of the stick, you've been wronged. You've been sinned against. There's a suffering. There's an offense that you have undergone. Somebody might slander you. Somebody might gossip about you. So many things with the ninth commandment. It's, it's endless. The tenth commandment. Somebody has an envious attitude towards you. They envy. They covet things you have. They think, well, you don't deserve this. And so they're out to get you. To bring you down a notch. To get themselves up. And so on. These things are a constant problem in a fallen world. And in the church of Jesus Christ. Whether it's a congregation or a presbytery These kinds of ordinary, ongoing sins, offenses, wrongs, injustices, when we're on the other end of these things, especially for a long, continuous, indefinite period of time, we can very easily make excuses and say, well, I've had it. I've I've been patient up to this point. And Paul says, love suffers long and is kind. Well, it's been a long time, so now I... No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying suffer for a period of time that you think is long enough and then you get to sin. There's no justification for sin. We have a duty to love our enemies. Jesus loved and forgave the people that nailed Him to the cross while they were mocking Him. Never a justification for hatred or unjust anger. Never a justification to sin against anyone at any time. When He says suffers long and is kind, what He's saying is suffer as long as it takes, even if it's a really long time, even if it only ends when one of the two of you ends up in eternity. That's the suffering that's in view. Secondly, what is love's response to such suffering? What is love's response to this type of suffering? First, we see what love's response isn't from a negative standpoint. Love is not vengeful. Love is not trying to get the person back in one way or another. And there's so many ways that we can do this, right? We can get back at people without actually 
technically getting back at them. Maybe we just use comments that we make about that person when they're not around and kind of bring them down a notch and so on and so forth, hurt their reputation, which the Bible says a person's good name is more valuable than gold and silver and rubies. So, you know, you might as well pick their pocket. But the point is, there are many ways that we can get revenge on people, even if it's not punching them in the face or, or slashing their tires. We can do it in, in a host of ways. Love does not respond with, with an angry spirit. Now, we can be angry in a righteous cause for the glory of God, but if our pattern of anger is that those righteous causes tend to always support our own inclinations and we're, we're angry at other people for sinning against us, but not so angry at ourselves for the sins we commit, clearly there's a double standard. It's sinful anger. Love is not bitter. To be kind, which he says love is, is is to not be bitter, to not have a a sort of disgust with the person who has offended you, and to have a spirit that looks upon them with this vitriol and just utter distaste and and bitterness. Uh, Love is not quarrelsome or argumentative or overly defensive. Love is not fake. So whatever love is, we'll talk about it in a moment, love is kind, but it's not a fake kindness. Jesus talks about our duty to forgive our brother or sister from the heart, Matthew 18, verse 35. Love is not just an outward token gesture, but it comes from the heart. That's the response. So it can't be external, it can't just be fake. And love is not harsh, Maybe there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. We'll talk about that. But love is not going to be harsh. And as we'll see later in some of these points that Paul brings up, love is not censorious. Right? So if uh, somebody says something to you that you think is off base, you can exaggerate that and you can make it far worse than it actually is. And, you know, you can do that in the life of the church. You get into a a dispute with somebody and then all of a sudden you want to bring that person up on charges for slander and blasphemy just because they they said something that you didn't like. So be careful about these kind of things. Love is not like that. That's not how love responds. Positively, love suffers long and is kind. And this word for kind means mild and pleasant. Pleasant. So it's not harsh, it's mild, it's calm, it's pleasant. As Edward says, it's the sort of mindset where you, you wouldn't hesitate to enter into prayer at that moment. Now this is, understand, this is what God requires. This is what we've fallen short of as sinners. This is what Jesus did for us perfectly so that we could be right with God. And this is what Jesus now helps us to do increasingly. So if, if you look at your response to offenses and you're not ready to offer up a prayer or a benediction at the moment you've been offended, understand, uh, join the club, but we're we're trying to identify and work with these things and repent and walk in the kindness that God has commanded. So the the lexicon definition of the word is, is to be mild, to be pleasant, to be benevolent. You have goodwill. You want the best for the other person. Even if the other person's character is such that you don't find them to be morally desirable or you don't look to them as a mentor, you don't look at that person and say, wow, I want to be like them. 
you look at them and you say, ah, this is a problem, the way they're acting. So I'm not saying that you admire them, but you have goodwill toward them. You want the best for them, physically and spiritually. The word kind can mean useful. So it's not just saying begrudgingly bring the person a Tupperware of chocolate chip cookies. It's saying from the heart, be useful to help them. Do what you can do to be a blessing to them. We'll see some examples of that in a moment. Uh, In fact, let, let me just turn your attention to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 35. Luke 6, verse 35. Jesus says, but love your enemies. We saw that in Matthew 5 as well. It's a parallel text. He says, but love your enemies, do good. Not just moral goodness, but circumstantial goodness. Be a blessing to them. Be generous to them. Do things that are good for them to promote their well-being. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. So it's not out of self-interest. See, that's what the world says love is. The world says love is just self-interest. Now we know that when we keep God's law, it's a blessing. And when we love other people, actually... We might think, oh, if I love that person, this is going to be miserable. Then we actually do it and we say, wow, a clear conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit. So I'm not suggesting that there's no self-interest in any sense. When we glorify God by loving people, we enjoy God and we enjoy His commendation. But love is not fundamentally grounded in self-interest. Now, if you believe in evolution and that morality just evolved for the purpose of the survival of the species, for the utilitarian purposes of, of uh, you know, natural selection and these things, you're going to have a problem there because the only basis for morality is self-interest at that point. We're supposed to do good things and avoid these evil things because it's utilitarian, because it, it helps me survive or it helps the species survive or something like that. But true love is actually self-sacrificial and true love is reflected in God giving His Son and Jesus the Son giving Himself for His people. So it's not about your own personal gain. It's not just saying love other people, love your enemies because it will make your life a lot better. Well, in a sense it will, but that's not the motive. And certainly it won't make it better in the way that all the self-help gurus try to suggest. He says, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. You'll be like God. You'll be a child of God and you'll spend eternity with God. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. I don't need to tell you that. You don't need to tell me that because that's us, as we heard in the psalm meditation, by nature our sin makes us unthankful and evil to one extent or another in our sinful flesh. And that's the thing Jesus had to save us from. And that's the thing that we're trying to work through in our sanctification. So if God has been kind to unthankful, evil people like you and me, we ought to want to be kind to unthankful and evil people around us. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. So mild, pleasant, benevolent, useful, seeking to... Do good things. Promote a person's well-being, even if they're an enemy. Let me just read as well from uh, Ephesians 4, verse 32 and following. Just listen to this. or I'll start in verse 31. Let all bitterness 
wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So any form of hatred, any form, any, any lack of love, put it all away. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, and so on. So be kind. Follow the example of God through Christ in saving you from your sins, dear believer. That is your paradigm. Jesus says, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you rest, He says. He says, I, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Jesus is not going to quench the smoking flax. He's not out to get His people. He's kind and loving toward His people. And he, he is lowly in heart. He's not harsh. He receives us, loves us, nurses us back to health and promotes our well-being. Love is kind. It, it patiently promotes the physical and spiritual well-being of other people. It loves even its enemies or frenemies, however you want to put it, friends that act like enemies. With friends like this, who needs enemies, as they say? Sadly true in many cases. But, do good to them from the heart. Third question. What is love's agenda in promoting the offender's well-being? What is love's agenda in promoting the offender's well-being? So the person has sinned against you. They've been unjust, unreasonable, inexcusable in the way they've treated you. What is love's agenda? Why is love kind? What's the end goal here? Some of us like to think in those terms. What's the goal? What's the purpose here? It's not just to be nice so that other people think you're nice and you can put it on social media and get a pat on the back with a virtue signal. There's an actual practical agenda that forms the basis of this commandment to be kind. And the agenda is to promote, as I said, that person's well-being. We want that person to repent of their sin. We want that person to stop acting irrationally and unreasonably and inexcusably. We want them to stop doing that and glorify God and be a source of love and peace and harmony. Right? I think we all want that. Later, Paul in our chapter deals with the danger of rejoicing in iniquity. We're out to get these people that have done things to us and we want to catch them and it's almost like we rejoice when they mess up. Uh, be careful of that type of spirit. That's not the spirit of love. That's the accuser of the brethren. That's the devil's mindset. He wants people to mess up so that he can accuse them. We can't fall into that. We want to see the person that sinned against us repent and be restored. And first of all, this involves promoting their physical well-being. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 12 toward the end of the chapter as he's applying all the doctrines that he proclaimed in the first 11 chapters. He moves to the practical side and start in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So you're going to have enemies. Do your best to avoid it. It's going to happen. It's a, you know... 
It's a real-world situation here. You're going to have people that you just can't seem to get along with as best as you try. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if somebody sins against you, leave it in the hands of the God-appointed authorities. Leave it in God's hands for Him to deal with at the final judgment through Christ or through providence. Leave it in the hands of the church to deal with it through discipline. Leave it in the hands of the civil government, the power of the sword, to address this offense if it rises to that level. But don't take personal vengeance. Notice verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, he is not saying here, as I was taught in Mennonite school, that Anabaptist Mennonite who was being attacked and persecuted and these uh, soldiers were taking the thatch off of his roof and abusing his family that you know, he gave them food and drink and was hospitable as they were ruining his life. That's not what this is talking about. Uh, if your love and kindness toward one person facilitates their oppression and violence against other people, that's not actually being kind. You know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're, you're, you're being kind to the person who's being unkind to other people and ruining their life. So understand that's not what it's saying. But we're, we're saying if there's an enemy who is in no way threatening anybody else, but they happen to have needs and you could possibly help them fix that flat tire or you could give them a bottle of water because they're thirsty or do something to, to show goodwill toward them in a vulnerable position, if your enemy has a need, help him or help her with that need. If he's hungry, if he's thirsty, do what you can to help and promote the physical well-being of your enemy. And notice, what's the purpose of that? What, what is the purpose? Again, we're asking, what, what is the agenda here? It's to win the person. When it says... In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That is not saying, of course not literally, that like Sodom and Gomorrah, God's going to rain down judgment on them. That's not our goal. That's not our agenda. We want as many people to be saved, including our enemies. We want to win the person to repentance. So it's not talking about hellfire and brimstone. Uh, It's not saying you'll make them feel really bad and really stupid and you'll look really good and they'll look really bad and you'll walk off beaming. Okay, does that sound like Christian ethics to you? I don't think so. That's not love. What it's saying is they'll feel really bad about what they've done and God will use it in many cases to bring them to their senses because you've been so kind to them. Maybe they were making an excuse that you're such a bad person. Believe it or not, you know, sometimes... It, it, it goes on both ends here. We can do sinful things to other people. And they use that as an excuse to be unkind to you. And now all of a sudden you're being gracious to them and it convicts them. Well, wait a second. Maybe I've prejudged this person. Maybe I need to realign my thinking here. And so th- this is the conviction of sin in their conscience, which we all have experienced at times when you realize, oh no, I can't believe I was acting this way toward this person. Wow. And it's like a a heap of coals of fire on your head. And so the goal is to overcome the evil. Don't be overcome by it and be dragged down so that it just continues to feed 
into itself this conflict with this person and it gets worse and worse and worse, but overcome the evil, including the other person's evil. Overcome it by showing love, by being good and gracious, and promoting even their physical well-being to win them. Now, you also want to promote their spiritual well-being directly. So, promoting their physical well-being indirectly promotes their spiritual well-being, but you also want to, in many cases, directly promote the, the offender's spiritual well-being. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says that love covers a multitude of sins. So if somebody is sinning against you and maybe it's happening repeatedly, you're suffering long and you think to yourself, well, this person is a brother or sister in Christ and what should I do? Well, the first thing that you should do is recognize that in a vast majority of cases, where there are minor offenses, love is just going to cover that sin. Okay, Love is just going to cover that sin. If it's just something minor, maybe it's a personality quirk, maybe it is a sin that you might you know, log that away and say, I might look for an opportunity to come and speak to this person, but based upon the dynamic, right now is probably not the time. You cover that in love. You get rid of any bitterness you are forgiving in your heart doesn't mean you've reconciled on the issue but but you you don't hold it you don't hold a grudge you you don't have a wrathful spirit against them you let it go out of sight and out of mind and you just bear with it knowing that everybody else is bearing with you and in many cases this is the best way to handle minor offenses proverbs 15 verse 1 let me read that as well A lot of practical guidance in the book of Proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So again, you avoid lashing out, reviling them, uh, condemning them. You either cover it in love, or if 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 it's gotten to the point of a boiling point of conflict, you respond by the grace of God, not in a condemning tone, but just in a gracious, soft answer. So that's, that's the first level there for minor offenses. If anything, a soft answer, sometimes just you don't even address it. And it's a glory for a man, the proverb says, a glory for a man or a woman to overlook an offense. However, there comes a time when certain offenses according to your best judgment, for the good of that person need to be addressed on a brotherly, sisterly level. And so, you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, it means to cover it in love if you can, give a soft answer, avoid the conflict if it's unnecessary. But at a certain point, if you're in a position prayerfully to address that so that they can help get over the hump and move on and and walk in more faithfulness to the Lord in this area, then it's actually hatred on your part 
to neglect to warn them or lovingly to rebuke or confront them. If God gives you an opportunity, and again, you got to pray about it and evaluate the opportunity, but God gives you an opportunity, if you don't take it, you're actually hating that person. And you're becoming a participant in the sin of that person. You're bearing that, that you're be, you become an enabler in their sin in that area. Now, you don't do it in a vengeful way. You don't bear a grudge. You love your neighbor as yourself. But again, if you had you know, a, a bug on the back of your shirt, you know, you'd want somebody else to come and swipe it away. I mean, we, we want people, I hope as Christians, we want people to point things out in a loving way that we need to work on. Uh, if we can't do that, it's not a healthy situation. So there are times when we need to confront our brother. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18 where our brother or sister sins against us. And what's the loving thing? What's the kind thing to do? If it's not some minor offense that we can just cover in love, if it's really bothering us and it's really a concern, Matthew 18 verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, so you've gone once personally, privately, you've gone again with one or two others, uh, the person has clearly sinned, it's clear from, from all angles, and they still won't repent. At that point, tell it to the church, in this case, the, the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, don't just, you know disseminate, send letters to everybody in the congregation. Tell it to the elders of the church. Let them look into it. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So, if you love your neighbor, the kind thing to do in this situation is to promote their spiritual well-being by lovingly confronting them for this offense. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says you've got to be careful that you do it with a spirit of meekness and gentleness, lest in confronting their sin, you fall into sin in one way or another, uh, perhaps through a judgmental or vindictive spirit. Jude as well, just very briefly, second to last book in the Bible, Jude tells us, again, we have to use discretion in applying this principle. Jude verse 21 says to keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 22, and some on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even hating the garment defiled by the flesh. So different types of strategies for different types of offenses, different types of people with different types of attitudes. Some people, you just, you're compassionate, maybe you cover it, maybe you soft answer or a gentle word of counsel, and other people, you just, you know, they're out in the middle of the street, the Mack truck is coming, you just run across and tackle them and throw them onto the pavement to save them. Uh, so we need discernment there, but we need to be responding in order to promote their spiritual interest. We want to win them. That's the goal. And even when it comes to a husband who is disobedient, 1 Peter 3 says that the wife is to win him without a word by her conduct. 
So even where she's not necessarily directly rebuking her husband or whatever, she's still in covering it in love or in addressing it with a soft answer in a respectful way through her conduct, through her meek and quiet, submissive spirit, she is to overcome evil with good and promote her husband's best interest so that he's no longer disobedient to the word, but that he's won over to obedience. So that's love's agenda, to win the person to obedience. Fourthly, what produces this loving response? What is it that produces this loving response? Well, Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it goes on to mention kindness, or gentleness rather. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now, it does say it for this translation, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about how many of those graces are relevant here. Love, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Where does all of that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from you. It doesn't come from trying really hard on your own, in your own strength, but it comes from the Holy Spirit whom Christ has put into your heart at your conversion, at your regeneration, you have all that you need for life and godliness. Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. And what that means, if we translate it in terms of the the Greek tense there, go on being increasingly filled with the Spirit. So you've been filled with the Spirit, but go on being increasingly filled with the Spirit. Drink of one Spirit through the means of grace, 1 Corinthians. Drink of that one Spirit through the Word and prayer, public, private, family worship. Commune with Christ in the secret place. It's the Holy Spirit who produces these things. Now I realize that can suggest a sort of let go and let God mentality, and we need to be very careful about that. If we let go, that's not self-control, is it? If we just let go, I can tell you what our response is going to be, and it's not going to be anything like this. So, the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is not automatic. This morning we talked about, in our justification, not moving a muscle in any way to add to the work of Christ. In terms of justification, uh, we don't move a muscle. We don't work. It's the person who doesn't work for their justification that is justified through faith in Christ. But in terms of sanctification, it's not like getting a haircut where you're just sitting there trying not to move so they don't mess it up. Sanctification involves effort. The Spirit is willing and working in you, producing your genuine striving, your effort, your passionate response of obedience. Look with me at Colossians 3.12. It's obviously... Biblical doctrines can be abused, and we talk about the sovereignty of God. God chose us, we didn't choose Him, and we're the elect of God. He's predestined us to eternal life. He's guaranteed the perseverance of every true Christian, every true saint, and the danger is we focus so much upon what God has done and is doing that we forget that when God is at work, 
that produces work in us. And that we're not supposed to sit back and wait till we feel God working. Oh, I'll love this person and show kindness and patience and forgiveness when I feel the Spirit moving. That's not biblical. Colossians 3.12 Therefore, as the elect of God, okay, so Calvinism notwithstanding, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, building on the morning sermon, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your heart. So there's a little bit of let go, let God, but it's really just at the end. Um, There's an effort here that you're putting forth. Put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast away your filthy rags. Humble yourself. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ as we saw this morning as is signified in baptism. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for pride. Make no provision for one-upmanship. Make no provision for your own ego. Put on the Lord Jesus. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bear with each other. Forgive each other. You say, well, they haven't repented. How can I forgive them? Well, the point here is not full reconciliation of the relationship. That would require mutual repentance and forgiveness. But what it's saying here is don't harbor bitterness. Sometimes the, the command to forgive is just simply saying, be gracious to them, don't harbor bitterness against them. Though we believe in predestination and the sovereignty of God, put these things on and do it. And do it for the glory of God. And, and when you have a passion to be a doer of the Word, there's a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. So, that is what produces this loving response. What motivates this loving response? Let me just hit you with a barrage of motives. First, love for God. You love God. You're a child of God. You want to be like God. We read in the Sermon on the Mount, multiple Parallel passages. If you want to be like your heavenly Father. We read in the epistles, if you want to be like Christ who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If you want to be like your God, then you will put on tender mercies and you'll show people the grace that He's shown you. If you love God, you'll look at the cross, which is His magnum opus in saving you who are unthankful and evil, and you will see in the cross a perfect example. You'll be convicted at how loving Jesus is and how unloving you and I are. You'll see the the shame that He bore on your behalf and it will humble you. And you'll also see that He paid for your sinful responses and cleansed you from your sin. It'll liberate you because you love Him, you will be like Him. He demonstrates His love for us in that He sent His Son while we were yet sinners to die for us. Secondly, what motivates this loving response is a humility for sin. God's forgiven you a million dollar debt and you're going to rough somebody up and, and, and grab them by the collar and throw them against the wall and demand that they pay you back five bucks. We act that way in our flesh. 
We need to stop acting that way. We need to think about the debt that Christ has paid on our behalf and the debt of offense that people have with us. Look, forgive us our debts, Lord. Forgive us our debts. And if we don't forgive our debtors, then we have no assurance that God will forgive our debts. And the fact is our debt that we couldn't pay, that Christ paid for us, that's been forgiven, is infinitely more than whatever sin debt somebody else owns us, owes us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Humility for our own sin. Thirdly, the sovereignty of God. David was cursed by Shimei and he said famously, God is sovereign over this. God has told Shimei, sovereignly as it were, God has said to Shimei, curse David. He saw God's sovereignty in this offense. He saw behind the curtain that God was rebuking him. Shimei was sinning. Shimei was sinning. But God was rebuking David. When people offend us, one of the most powerful ways to avoid bitterness and anger and unkindness is this. To think about all the sins that we've committed and perhaps God's highlighting one. Perhaps He's saying, look, just like with David when Absalom sinned against David with his wives on the rooftop. God permits these things to happen. He ordains these things to happen against us to rebuke us for sin. So the sovereignty of God puts our focus in the right place. Fourthly, common sense. Common sense. My friends, it's a wicked world. It's not a, it's, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a Disney movie, although who knows what that means anymore. But use your common sense. There are going to be offenses. So when we wake up in the morning, let's wake up and recognize the next thing I see could be something offensive. Let's be ready for it. Let's not be taken by surprise that there are offenses. Jesus says offenses must come. Woe to those who bring them, but they're going to be there. So just deal with it. Fifthly, conquest. The meek shall inherit the earth. This is God's strategic agenda for overcoming evil in the world. Overcoming it with good. That's not the world's mentality. That's why the world's going to fail. That's why the Great Commission will succeed. The meek shall inherit the earth in history and the meek shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So read, sing Psalm 37 and see God's plan for victory. And finally, a motive. Think of your inheritance. Whatever offense somebody's committed against you, they haven't stolen your crown of life. They haven't stolen your eternal inheritance. If you can really say, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? What on earth do I desire beside you? If that's really true, you're going to be a lot less concerned with offenses against you. Now, that's easier said than done, but I'm saying that's how it's done. And we need to meditate upon that eternal weight of glory, the love of God in Christ that nobody can take away from us. When we don't love in this way, what sin are we guilty of? We're guilty of hatred. And it's very important to realize that. Sometimes that we, we, can make it, we can say things like, well, I wasn't as kind as I should have been. No, when we don't suffer long and remain kind... What, what is that? If it's not love, if love suffers long and is kind, what's the opposite of love? What's the lack of love? It's hatred. Let's be convicted. Let's, let's correct and rebuke ourselves and preach that to ourselves. Titus 3, 2 says, uh, or verse 3 says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, 
hateful. That means in a sense people had good reason to hate us. Not really, but we were hateful. We, we, uh, we evoked hatred from other people. And hating one another. And I'm just pointing out here that those two are in the same list. Those two are in the same list characterizing people that go to hell. And it's not just the hateful person who's a big jerk to everybody. It's the one who then hates them as a response. The person who hates them as a response to their hateful behavior. Children, I'm not saying you should use the word jerk. Just keep that in mind. But um, the point is, the person that's hateful, the person that hates them in return, if you're dragged down to the level that the, of the person that's sinning against you, understand, be very careful, you're no better than them, according to that verse. Now, lastly, how do we repent of our hatred? How do we repent of our harsh, bitter, unkind, judgmental, vengeful, unforgiving spirit against people that sin against us? I've already said look to the cross, uh, but let me elaborate on that. You need to confess your sin. We've got the Lord's Supper coming up. Think about this. Examine yourself in light of this verse and confess your hateful behavior. And let me do that as well. Let's, Let's focus on this verse the Lord's brought before us in the week heading into the Lord's Supper. And let's examine ourselves and confess our hateful behavior, our vengeful, bitter, harsh, unkind behavior, our unforgiving spirit. Let's confess that to God and confess it to others, whether they're Christians or not. If they're human beings on the face of the earth, let's get in touch with them and confess that sin. And let's believe His promise that we can do all things through Christ who gives us the strength. I just want to close on that, that we need to believe the promises. How hypocritical are we if we say to the sodomite, to the homosexual, you need to repent of your same-sex attraction. That's sinful. That's a sinful, lustful, ungodly desire and practice in your life. You need to repent. And they say, well, that's just who I am. I can't stop. I have all these temptations. No, you need to repent or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. But then with our sin, we say, well, yeah, but this person's just being unkind to me. And well, I'm just kind of a harsh, bitter person by nature, unkind, and so on and so forth. And we make excuses. And all of a sudden, the gates and doors of the kingdom of heaven are barred for the homosexual. But the person who is reproachful and reviling and unkind and vengeful and unforgiving somehow gets in the door. That is an unbiblical gospel. Preach the real gospel to yourself every day and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks to You for Your Holy Spirit who is omnipotent, who has all power and might. There's no sin that He can't utterly destroy. There's no sin that He cannot enable us to crush underfoot. There's no gracious act of obedience or no gracious attitude that He can't produce in our lives. And so we pray that You would give us faith and confidence in Your Word and in Your Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. If it were not so, He would have told us. We can trust these promises. Help us to trust them and to obey. For His sake, Amen.